Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to a new episode and indeed a new series of Talking France. We are back this week with more analysis on the big news stories in France as well as insights into French culture. To start us off, we'll look at the state of play with the ongoing French pension strikes and whether they could yet bring France to a standstill. We'll look into the controversy surrounding Paris 2024 Olympics tickets and why it's only March but we're already talking about water restrictions and drought in France. And looking ahead to the summer, we'll hear which of the islands off France's western coast is the best to visit this year and find out why parents in the country might have to give up posting pictures of their kids on Facebook. And we all know the French love food, but what times of the day do they actually sit down to eat? And if you want tips on the best French TV series to watch, then stay tuned until the end. I'm your host, Ben McPartland, and I'll be joined by the local France's editor, Emma Pearson, journalist Jen Mansfield, and our politics expert, John Litchfield. Emma, Jen, before we go on, we should say happy birthday. Not to either of you, of course. It's the birthday of this podcast. One year birthday. We started a year ago. Emma, we've come a long way. It was a pretty disastrous first episode, if you remember. It was very bad, yes. We recorded the first one and just everything went wrong. All the tech wasn't right. And we went out to a little bar near the Arc de Triomphe for a very gloomy beer. And we sat around singing, this is the end of the podcast, that clearly we can't do this. We're too rubbish. Yeah. Um, but we, we carried on. I think we... We were <laughs> full of self-loathing, but we picked ourselves up. Into our sixth theories now. It started off as a... French election podcast, basically, but it's become a lot more than that now. Yeah, definitely. We kind of set it up just to cover the the French elections, which were pretty uh, historic and significant back a year ago. But now, yeah, I mean, obviously, we still cover politics. We still cover any elections that are happening now, but we also cover the news from France, a bit of cultural stuff about France, a little bit of language and a little bit of tips for people who want to either move to France or maybe just spend more time here or just find out a bit more about it because we think it's a pretty interesting country. It certainly is. And we've got more and more listeners. And thanks to everybody one for tuning in each week and thanks in particular to those who leave a review a positive review I should say either on Apple or Spotify or wherever they listen to the podcast it really helps us reach new audiences and with that we should crack on with what we do best is the news and the talking points in France this week now French pension strikes they haven't gone away they're still going on there was another day of action this week Emma Jen what happened on March the 7th this week and what's happening in the next days and weeks to come well March the 7th was the latest big strike day we had a, a little break of a couple of weeks during the school holidays but we were back on March the 7th unions vowed to bring France to a halt that didn't quite happen although we did see quite a lot of disruption especially on trains and city public transport and we also saw an estimated 1.2 million people out on the streets which is the biggest demo turnouts so far. We also saw a small group of workers at EDF who succeeded in briefly cutting off the power to the little town called Annonay down in Ardèche, which is in the southeast of France. It's the hometown of Olivier Dussopt, who's the Labour minister, and he's kind of become the, the face of the pension reform. That was a, a rogue action. It wasn't an officially sanctioned uh, part of the strikes, but 
it happened. But I think it's also important to kind of point out that not everybody was on strike. This isn't a general strike, as I've seen some foreign press report. Most private sector workers were working, um, including journalists like us. The action was quite heavily concentrated in the public sector, with the exception of oil refinery workers. Okay, now this week on March 7th, it was different to previous days of action, though. What's changed? Well, I think we saw two main changes this week. The first was that Les Routiers got involved. This is the the drivers, truckers, hauliers. This was the first time they'd really been involved with this, and it was therefore the first time that the strikes affected drivers. There were blockades on some of the major roads. There were rolling roadblocks, the fabulously named Operation Escargot, the snail operation. There were roundabout protests, and there were also blockades of fuel refineries. And I think the second thing that we've also seen that's changed is that while some of the unions struck to just having a one-day action on the Tuesday, Others are now on what they call un grève reconductible. I always find it hard to say that. But it's a, a renewable or a rolling strike that's set to continue over the days ahead. So railway workers, waste collectors, staff on the public Paris public transport network, they're all on renewable strikes. So we can expect disruption to continue throughout this week. Although exactly how much disruption there will be and how long unions can keep their members out remains to be seen, I think. Okay, and just to remind listeners, this is, of course, all against Emmanuel Macron's French pension reform, the standout element of which is to raise the pension age from 62 to 64. What's happened with the reform itself, Emma? It's uh, it's still being debated. It's in the Senate at the moment. We had two weeks of debates in the Assembly Nationale. But there were actually, there were so many opposition amendments tabled, about 18,000 amendments tabled in total, that the debate time ran out before they even got to Article 7, which is the really controversial one, the one you just mentioned, raising of the pension age from 62 to 64. So it's now in the Senate. Senators are also trying to add their own amendments, especially one that would create more pension protections for older workers who are unemployed, because that is an issue that older workers find it hard to find work. So the bill will come back to the Assembly Nationale week beginning March 13th. Uh, and the debates are set to end on March 26th and the Macron government is hoping that they will be able to push this through with MPs from the centre-right party without having to resort to its emergency constitutional powers. This is a good moment to bring in our French politics expert, John Litchfield, who joins us on the line from Normandy. I asked John whether French unions can keep up the pressure on the government and can they succeed in making Macron give ground? It was a big, big turnout. 1.28 million, I think the official figure was. The union figures, I think, we can ignore because they don't seem to be able to count, strangely. I mean, they were claiming over 3 million, claiming over 700,000 in Paris, which is clearly wrong. So, But 1.28 was slightly more than than in January the 31st, the last big demo. But really, if you think what the unions had claimed they were going to about, stopping the country, shutting down the economy, bringing France to a halt, didn't happen. You know, the marches were big. They're probably the biggest for 30 years. And there is a lot of anger about this in the country. That is clear. But the strikes were no more effective than they'd been previously in January. The railways were disrupted, but there were still trains. The metro was disrupted, but there were still trains. Only something like 40% of teachers were on strike. No effect on the private industry, shops or anything like that at all. So France was not brought to a halt, nor will it be, I think, by the continuing strikes which are going to go on in some sectors like rail and metro and energy, because the unions met the eight different TUCs in France, met to have a Council of War, and they took these decisions which I think show a sense of weakness rather than strength. One, they decided not to have 
a kind of general open-ended strike, which some of the more militant branches have been asking for. Instead, they're going to have another day of marches and strikes on Saturday and another next Wednesday. Interesting to see how effective those will be. And also they call for direct talks with Macron, which seems to me a slightly feeble appeal because they know that Macron isn't going to come into direct talks with them. He's leaving this to the government, as technically he should as president of the Republic. So that was, in a sense, a sort of desperate sort of thing to make it seem as if Macron was ignoring them and so on. So I don't think the unions feel they're in an enormous position of strength. They can cause a lot of trouble. I mean, the, the oil refinery strikes are things to watch for. Unions are in a difficult position, though. I think the more they cause real problem for the people of France, the more public opinion will swing away from them and towards the government, which is why they've decided not to go for this general strike. John, you mentioned their public opinion. Polls show a majority of French people are against the reform, but also a majority expect it to go through nevertheless. A sign, perhaps, that the French are resigned to this reform happening? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think there's there's a sense of anger rather than determination in most of the country. There are people out there who are sort of much more angry about it to the point of being almost hysterical, you know, um, some of the sort of uh, direct action yesterday, like the electricity workers cutting off power to several villages in the Ardèche just because it happened to be the constituency. Olivier Dussopt, the, the employment minister, who's the sort of front man for this reform, that's the kind of thing that's not going to help the unions. And I think that the national leadership knows that, but there's an element out there that's either very determined or very hysterical about it. And I think they're possibly going to be more of a problem for the unions than they are for the government in the next couple of weeks, but that we'll see. Now let's move on to who we are talking about in the news this week. Jen, you've picked out somebody for us from the French government and explain why. Yeah, so I picked out Christophe Béchou. He's one of France's two environment ministers and he's been in the news a lot lately because he had to call an emergency meeting with local authorities across the country to discuss the ongoing winter drought that France has been experiencing in these past few weeks. Béchou himself does not have a specific background in environment work. He used to actually be the mayor of Angers and before that he was a member of the European Parliament, but we're focusing on him right now because he's been sounding the alarm when it comes to drought in France. Jen, it's only March and we actually warned listeners in the previous episode of Talking France in February that France was already facing the prospect of drought. What is going on? Yeah, so last time uh, we spoke on the podcast, France had experienced 32 days without significant rainfall from January to February, which broke previous winter drought records. After that, Béchou met with local authorities and encouraged them to take on water restrictions. Now, it's important to note that in France, water restrictions are done by municipality, and there are four levels. So they range from issuing warnings to imposing serious restrictions on domestic water use. And those restrictions, like I mentioned, are implemented on the local level. So far, four départements have put in place restrictions, and then two others are listed on that initial warning level. And most of them are located in the south, so like the Var and Bouches-de-Rhône, where Marseille is located. And then there's also Pyrénées Orientales, and that's the department that is on the border with Spain near the Pyrenees Mountains. And there are several localities that are on the third level of alert there, which involves reducing water withdrawals for agricultural purposes by at least 50%, and then also introducing more stringent rules on watering your garden, green spaces, golf courses, and washing your car. Most recently, the Yvelines Departement in Paris, or near Paris, I should say, was placed on the lowest level, that vigilance level, uh, which simply encourages people to reduce their water usage. Some municipalities have started taking uh, Béchou's advice on board, and even beyond 
simple water restrictions, nine towns in the VAR have actually moved to suspend all new building applications for the next four years due to persistent drought issues and low groundwater levels. The officials there explained that their areas already have really high populations, and the priority is to ensure adequate access to water for those already living there. Mm, okay, water restrictions are being put in place. Jen, as we're recording this podcast, it's drizzling outside our office. Is that enough rain? What's the uh, outlook for the summer? Well, the gist is that experts are warning that the months of March and April are going to be crucial for what happens this summer. So currently, two-thirds of the country's rivers are below normal water levels, and there was a significant lack of snow in the Alps this past winter, which, as we saw a few weeks ago, delayed the start of the ski season. But it also means that there's less meltwater um, in the late spring and early summer, which is also another important factor for replenishing groundwater supplies in eastern France. Yikes. We just need rain. Any kind of rain? Strong rain? Storms? Well, not necessarily storms. Climate experts are saying that the country needs productive rainfall. So they're basically worried that March might see a return to wetter weather. But if that rain is made up of stormy showers, then the groundwater may not recharge because that's not considered productive rainfall. And the other issue is that France has to contend with the fact that spring is when plants blossom, and that absorbs a lot of rainwater as well. So even if there is rainfall, it might not necessarily refill those groundwater resources. Yeah, last year we reported probably towards the the summer and autumn on the drought as well. It's becoming an increasingly big problem in France. Last week, Le Parisien newspaper released an article that went through just how much the climate crisis has been costing French insurance providers. I believe they said drought is one of their primary concerns, Jen. Yeah, it's really high up on the list. Problems resulting from drought, like cracks in houses, cost French insurers about 2.5 billion euro in 2022. And insurance providers expect the number of drought-related claims to triple in the next 30 years. And a big part of that issue is just how widespread drought is. The French Court of Auditors told Le Parisien that over half of France's single-family homes are considered to be in areas of medium or high exposure regarding drought, and that actually 16% of them are are located in, quote, high-risk areas. Interesting, serious stuff there. Emma, I think you're going to need to give us a little rain dance over the next few days. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, as the native of somewhere famously uh, cold and rainy like the north of England, I never thought I'd be desperate for rain, but here we are. Yeah, OK, we'll, we'll follow this story throughout the spring and the summer. Thanks, Jen. Each week, we like to take a trip around the country to look at a part of France in the news. Emma, why are we heading west? Because we're going to the western islands of France, which are three islands off the west coast of the country. They're a very popular destination for French people, but they're not very well known to foreigners, which is a shame because they're lovely. The reason we're talking about them is that one of them, the Ile de Noirmoutier, has been in the news this week because one of the island's restaurants, called La Marine, has won a coveted third Michelin star in the new Michelin Guide, which came out this week, hence why we're talking about it. I was just looking at La Marine. I'm going to Noirmoutier in April, actually. I was thinking of booking a table. I was looking at it, nine course meal. For 250 euros. Bargain. 310 euros if you get the wine that goes with each course, or you can get a six course meal for 160 euros. However, if you read the reviews on Google, it sounds like it's very much worth it. It, it sounds very lovely and uh, enjoy your dinner. But it's not really a surprise that these three islands would have such a fancy restaurant because the islands of Ile de Ré, Ile de Oloron, and perhaps to a lesser extent Ile de Noirmoutier have become very popular destinations for quite well-off French people, including Parisians. So you'll definitely find a lot of sort of high-end eating and drinking opportunities to get to the island. And all three of them are also accessible by car via either a bridge or a causeway. So they're easy to get to. So I think this is also another reason why they're popular. So starting off, 
off with Ile de Ré, which is just off the coast of La Rochelle. It's sometimes known as like, the French Hamptons after the American resort of the Hamptons where rich New Yorkers go in the summer because a lot of very wealthy Parisians have holiday homes there. It is a holiday place. The island's winter population is 18,000 and that grows to 130,000 in the summer. But don't be put off by its reputation for wealthy holidaymakers because there are actually plenty of hotels, rental cottages, campsites that are more reasonably priced and it's perfectly possible to get reasonably priced and also delicious food. Seafood is big, obviously, as a yeah, a small island. Crepe are also big. And the local salt marshes produce a special kind of fleur de sel, which is sought after by cooks. And the island is also famous for its herds of donkeys, which in the summer wear pyjamas. And you can buy this special donkey milk soap that's made on the island. Hold on, I need to stop you there, Emma. Donkeys in pyjamas and soap made from donkeys. Absolutely. Yes, they call them les ânes en culotte, which basically means like the the donkeys in knickers. They wear these special cotton trousers over both their legs. It's really just a historic thing to protect them from biting flies in the summer, but they've become a bit of a tourist attraction on the island. So you'll see donkeys everywhere and you can go and visit. Okay, and donkey soap, I mean this... Donkey and the word soap, they just don't go together. It's made, It's got donkey milk in it, so the milk from female donkeys, and it's very good for your skin. Um, it's supposed to make you look younger, although I bought some for my dad for Christmas and he looks pretty much the same, so I'm not sure whether that's um, scientifically proven, but, uh, but it's very nice soap and you can buy it everywhere on the island. We will see, okay, and just south of Ile de Ré is Ile d'Oloron. Tell us about Ile d'Oloron. Yeah, it's slightly less ritzy and expensive than Ile de Ré, and it's also a bit bigger. These are all quite small islands, so um, Ile d'Oloron is... 175 kilometres square compared to Ile de Ré at just 85 kilometres square. But Ile d'Oloron is really beautiful. It has a great network of cycle paths, so it's easy to get round by bike. It's particularly known for its oyster beds. So along the coast, you'll see miles of these flat oyster beds. And it also produces a lot of very nice white wine, which goes particularly well with the local seafood. It has several protected areas along the coastline as well. It has a really great variety of wildlife, as well as some absolutely beautiful beaches. It's my favourite out of the two. I think it's lovely. But the smallest of these that we're talking about is Ile de Noirmoutier. That one's a little bit further north. Uh, it's about 50 kilometres square, and it's just southwest of Nantes in the, uh, in the Vendée area. But this one I haven't visited but I know that you have. I have, actually, yeah. Uh, do you know why Noir Moutier is famous or what product it's famous for? I do not. Tell me. Well, salt, a bit like Ile de Ré. I think a third of the island is actually covered in salt marshes, but also another produce that probably wouldn't expect is actually Noir Moutier potatoes. Oh, yes, I have seen these, actually. Yeah, yes. Well, think, are they good? Are they special? Well, I mean, I've eaten a few, but the potatoes are potato for me. But, you know, I think it's to do with the sandy earth that is apparently meant to be great for producing potatoes. But um, it is a lovely island. It's kind of the nearest one, if you are travelling south from Paris or by car you can get to Nantes and keep going but uh, full of great cycle paths beaches as you'd expect and great food so you know it's really worth they're all really worth a visit actually yeah they're beautiful and actually my tip for them is to go in the winter because I say they are sort of summer destinations and I mean they're lovely in the summer but actually they're pretty attractive in winter too they're a little bit quieter there are still plenty of places that are open you can cycle around they've got you know wild sandy beaches so if you want a winter break as well bear them in mind definitely I think you've alluded to it going out of season to any of these popular places is really the key to really uh, make the most of them thanks emma for taking us on a trip to the western islands of france just a quick question do you know what the biggest island off the coast of france is it's corsica isn't it well done well done okay you passed the test right <laughs> we it's should very tense this podcast now you're <laughs> springing questions on us every i'm trying week. to get back for all the questions you've sprung on me over recent weeks now, another place in the news in recent weeks is Paris because of the Paris Olympics in 2024, but in particular 
because of the tickets. Emma, what's going on? Well, we've had the the first phase of sales for the 2024 Paris Games. About three million tickets went on sale from the middle of February. It's fair to say that a lot more than three million people tried to get them. Some people were lucky, but others were disappointed. And we've heard quite a lot of complaints about both the availability of tickets and the price. Around 80% of French people told a survey for the radio station RTL that they thought the tickets were too pricey. Yes, indeed. Too pricey. Uh, A lot of people complained that the system was a bit too complicated, that you had to buy three events at the same time. Is that right? Well, it's important to point out that this is just the first phase of ticketing. So anyone who didn't get what they wanted, there's another seven million tickets yet to go. Um, And yeah, the the first phase, as you say, was in packs of three. So the way the organisers have decided to do this is via a draw or a lottery. You entered into the draw and over the course of the last month, winners were sent an email with a time slot on the ticket buying site and you then had 48 hours to buy your tickets and for this first phase only those tickets were in packs of three and it kind of seems from talking to people that how lucky you were with the tickets really depended on whether you got an early slot or not so people who were drawn early they were able to pick the events that they wanted there were tickets available at the lower prices sort of 40 to 90 euros but those who got the later slots found that either the events they want were all completely sold out or the only tickets left were the really expensive ones and tickets go up to 690 euros so when we say expensive we mean very expensive yeah i believe you were one of the lucky ones who managed to get cheapish tickets emma i was one of the ones who when my slot came out i could only get couldn't see anything for under 200 euros apart from maybe a football match up in lille i mean what what hope is there for people like me who want to really go to some olympic events well don't panic this was only phase one so we've got more opportunities to come in may we get phase two this is also a draw so same format but this time it's for single tickets and there's another tranche of tickets released for this phase they haven't actually said how many but it's probably going to be another three million and it also includes events that weren't available in the first round such as the 100 meter final kind of the most popular event and also the opening ceremony if people want to go and see that so if you had no luck for the first time you can try again for phase two Uh, what you do for this is you register for the draw from march 15th you've got a month to register and then the sales begin in may and then there's a final phase which is in the autumn the exact date of that is still to be confirmed for the remaining tickets and that time it's not a draw it's just all the remaining tickets available to buy online on a first come first serve basis but it's also important to point out that all of this that we've been talking about is just for the olympics we also of course have the paralympics in the first two weeks of september same venues, same events, but in my opinion, even better, because to me, it's just incredible watching how these athletes adapt their sports to their disability, produce these incredible feats of athleticism. And it also includes the best sport in the world, wheelchair rugby, otherwise known as murder ball. It's incredible. It's so violent. It's so intense. It takes your breath away even just to watch it on TV. So that's what I'm holding out for. But anyway, tickets for the Paralympics, they go on sale in autumn 2023. Again, exact date, TBC. And they haven't confirmed this yet, but it seems likely that they'll just be sold online on a first-come, first-served basis. So no draw for those ones. There you go, listeners. There is still hope for anyone who wants to go to an event at the Paris Olympics and Paralympics in 2024. Now, Jen, tell us why French parents might have to think twice before posting images of their kids on social media. 
Well, they don't have to think twice just yet, but France's Assemblée Nationale recently voted unanimously in favor of codifying the right to privacy for children, specifically within France's civil code. So basically what that means, first of all, it comes from the fact that France already has pretty strict rules about photographing children. So for example, if you're a journalist wanting to do a story about a school, for instance, you would need to have signed permission forms from parents before taking any photos of their children. But those types of rules, they don't apply to parents themselves. And what the bill going through France's parliament would do as it stands is make it so that parents have a duty by law to respect their child's right to privacy. So does this mean parents in France need to ask their two-year-old child if they can post their picture on Facebook? Well, it's a little complicated. So in practical terms, it would mean that your child has a right to their own image. So before posting any pictures online, or on social media, the parent would need to have permission both from the other parent or legal guardian, and they would also have to, quote, take the child's opinion into account. I must say that this bill, it's still making its way through Parliament. It's not in its final form yet. Once it's in the Senate, we can definitely expect more changes and amendments to be made before it gets voted on. But as it's written right now, if the parents disagree on whether or not an image or video can be shared or published, then a judge could step in and prohibit the parent from publishing any content without the other's authorization. In the most serious cases, it could mean these are, you know, where there's, quote, injury to the child's dignity. The law could actually allow for a judge to be entrusted with the image rights for the child. What's the background to all this, Jen? Why does the French government want to push this through? Well, France's parliament is trying to address a few concerns, um, but mostly being this excessive sharing that some parents do with their children's images online. The bill actually cited some interesting figures. One was that before a child in France reaches the age of 13, they will have appeared in, on average, 1,300 photographs published online. And then on a more darker note, the assembly noted that over half of the photographs exchanged on child sexual exploitation forums were initially published by the child's parents on their own social media networks. And of course, this is just one element that reflects France's fairly strict laws when it comes to privacy in general. Yeah, you're right, Ben. So when it comes to privacy laws, France is quite strict. Actually, they're even codified. So France's civil code states that everyone has a right to privacy. And this spreads into several different parts of French life. So as you mentioned, we often see this come up with image rights. I don't know if you remember in 2021, French police opened up an investigation into a photographer for a violation of privacy over a picture that showed President Emmanuel Macron in swimming trunks on a holiday in the Mediterranean. But the gist is that people have the droit à l'image, and that's the basic right not to have pictures or images of themselves published against their will. And this is applied a bit differently when it comes to public figures versus the general public. So for ordinary members of the public like us, consent is typically required unless the publication of that photo is in the public interest or if the person is pictured as part of a large crowd. So for example, at a demonstration or a protest. And these privacy rules, they extend into several other parts of French society. So like regulations surrounding CCTV in French cities, the rules around your own personal personal right to have security cameras on your property and even flying a drone. So for example, if you want to set up a camera on your French property, maybe while you're away on holiday to make sure it's secure, uh, you have to be really, really careful to make sure that it only films your own personal property. It can't film the street. It can't film any part of your neighbor's yard or their home. And if you employ anyone who works on your property, then legally you're obligated to inform them of the presence of a camera. So basically no sneaky nanny cams are allowed in France. Really interesting. Thanks, Jen. Now, 
Now, one aspect of privacy is, of course, around media laws. And one person who knows a bit about this is John Litchfield, our politics expert, who has actually been sued for breach of privacy. I asked John, who joined us on the line again from Normandy, about why he was sued and media law in general in France. Yes, I was sued. I was fined one franc. shows how long ago it was, before it was even a euro. It was um, Patrick Poivre d'Avore, who was the best-known journalist in France at the time. He was the man who presented the TFI Evening News at that point, and had been for many years. And the TFI Evening News had been full of invasions of privacy of Princess Diana that summer, which again shows how far back it was. So I wrote a piece in The Independent at the time saying, you know, this is hypocrisy because he invades her privacy, but he hates having his own private rights invaded. In fact, he's having an affair with his co-presenter, Claire Chazal, and it's now known. So you won't be sued for invasion of privacy. And they even have a child together. And so he sued me for invading his privacy. And um, it was decided that it didn't really amount to a very serious breach. And so The Independent was fined one franc. But in fact, it is impossible under French law to say anything about the private lives of ordinary people or famous people without being in the serious danger of being fined or being made to pay compensation. And I once had a conversation with the editor of one of the French sort of mags that, that specialise in, in celebrity gossip. I think it was Voici. And she said it was just part of their uh, expenses, their weekly expenses. They knew they were going to have to send, spend several million every month on paying out fines and compensation for invading the lives of the celebrities they wrote about. But they accepted that as just part of their expenses, their normal expenses, and, and, and thought it was worth it. Mm. Did you pay the one franc, John, or did the independent pay? I believe they did, yes. Right, good, good, good. Very interesting stuff. Thank you, John, once again. Now, time for the reader question, and it's been a popular article on our website, thelocal.fr, this week. It's a very simple question. Emma, what time do the French eat dinner? Talk us through this. Well, it's a great question. Um, obviously, there isn't a hard and fast rule on this one. You know, different families have their evening meal at different times. And you might also find regional variations. But overall, I think it is fair to say that there are quite set times for eating in France and that the general philosophy is that you have a proper meal at set times of the day, plus one mandated snack time, which we'll get to in a minute, and the rest of the time you don't eat. So there's much less of a culture of sort of snacking or grazing than in other countries. So let's start with lunch because that's easy. At lunchtime is between 12 noon and 2 p.m. That's when restaurants are set up to serve and it's also when many offices close down for the lunch break and even if the office isn't closed I really wouldn't recommend ringing between 12 and 2 if you actually want anyone to help you. I remember sitting in the office hearing a colleague ring up a a French office and ask if a certain person was available and the answer just came back no, c'est midi. As in, no, of course this person isn't here, it's lunchtime. So don't ring offices at lunchtime would be my uh, tip. Then in the afternoon we get to four o'clock and it's snack time, which is known as goûter. Uh, although it's also sometimes known just as le quatre, the four o'clocks. This is really for kids. The idea is that they get a sugary snack at four o'clock once school finishes and that kind of tides them over till dinner time. But plenty of adults also take the opportunity to enjoy a, a mid-afternoon sweet treat as well. And it's the one time of day when it's really okay to eat something that's like properly sugary and junky, so like cake, biscuits, Nutella on a baguette, something like that. Very true. Goûte really is a big thing in France. Although I discovered a new word for a snack this week. Have you heard of onca? Onca? Yeah. No. E-N-C-A-S. And it basically comes from en cas de besoin, in oh, case you in need case. something. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, basically <laughs> the teachers were telling us to give our kids an en cas, which is like a little emergency snack that we can put in their pocket. But it's another word for a snack or like a really quickly prepared 
dinner to keep you going or meal to keep you going. But now look, when it comes to snacking and mealtimes, Emma, it pretty much, does it vary among families? Yes, I mean, the, the evening meal certainly varies among families. But if you're looking to book a restaurant, then don't really expect men to find many open before 7pm. That's the usual start time. And the normal start time for dinner would be between like 7.30 and 8.30. In Paris, it's a little bit later, maybe 8 till 9. If you want to eat in a restaurant after 2pm, but before 7pm, you need to look out for one that advertises service non-stop, which means they serve all day. They're usually the slightly cheaper ones, or maybe they're in tourist areas, and obviously the fast food restaurants serve all any hour of, of the day or night. If you're looking at families, in families, kids normally eat dinner with their parents. So like families with younger children might eat a bit earlier. But in general, I think the start time is around 7.30. If you look at the French TV schedules, the primetime programmes always start at 9pm. And the, the idea behind that is that families have their dinner, they finish, they do the washing up, and then they start watching TV from 9. So I think overall, the French, they do eat dinner a bit later than maybe Americans or certainly the Scandinavian countries. But we're not like those crazy people over the border in Spain who don't start eating dinner until midnight or something. There you have it. And if you want more information on this topic, you can visit our website, thelocal.com. FR. Thanks, Emma. As usual, we like to end Talking France with some tips for our listeners. This week, we've picked out some TV series, French TV series, in fact, which are great to watch, not only if you want to learn the language, but for understanding more about France and French culture. Um, guys, shall I start us off? Yeah, what you got? Is that okay with you? Well, I think this is the, the one that I really got into in France was Le Bureau de Légende. You heard of it? Yes, I'm, fa- I'm very excited about this. So you can't reveal any spoilers here oh, because I've requested okay, it for okay, my birthday. So I've got the, the box set is on its way to me okay. for my birthday. Well, let's see what I can say about it. Five series. It's a spy thriller about characters in France's external security service, the DGSE. It's actually going to be remade by George Clooney and it's going to be called The Department. But I recommend you watch the original. It stars Mathieu Kasovitz. Actually, do you know him? Yeah. Funnily mm-hmm. enough, he sped past our office the other day on a kind of electric bike with his kid on the back. But I didn't have time to stop him and ask him to get on the podcast but I'll, I'll try next time but uh, that's the one for me Le Bureau de Légende watch the French version before Clooney's remake comes out Emma what about you? Yeah I've picked out one that's on Netflix called Les Sept Vies de Léa The Seven Lives of Léa it has a slightly complicated concept and honestly when it first came out I didn't watch it because it didn't really sound like my kind of thing but I recently gave it a go and I'm very glad I did the premise is that Léa is a high school student she discovers a body which has been buried for 20 years and it belongs to someone that her parents were were at school with. And over the next seven days, Leia wakes up transported back to the 1990s and swaps bodies seven times as she tries to solve the mystery of his death. Like I said, it's a bit complicated, but honestly, just go with it. Don't overthink the concept, because what this actually is, is a really lovely portrait of being a teenager in a small town in the south of France, which is maybe a place you don't see so much on screen. It's really interesting for people like me who were alive in the 90s. There's a nice little nostalgia bang as they bring out their discmans and whatever. But one thing that was particularly interesting to me was the language because Leia is a teenager from 2021. Obviously, she uses modern slang. She then goes back in time to 1991, and it's interesting to hear the phrases and the slang she uses that the kids from 1991 don't understand at all. Give us so, an example. Well, she talks about something being un truc de ouf, mm. and her friends are like, un truc de quoi? De quoi? C'est quoi le ouf? Um, because this is clearly a more modern phrase than un 1991. Un truc de ouf means? 
it means like a crazy thing, but usually in like a positive sense. So yeah. if you saw a film that was absolutely amazing, you'd be like, oh, c'était fantastique, c'est un truc de ouf. Mm. It's villa, which is France's reversed slang. Ah, very good. Okay, Jen, what about you? So I've got a series that I actually haven't watched yet. So maybe it's a bit disingenuous for me to recommend it, but it's by one of my favorite directors, Xavier Donat. The series is called The Night Logan Woke Up. It's a thriller and you can find it on Canal Plus. But the reason that I recommend it is Xavier Donat is this awesome director He's actually Quebecois, so some of his stuff is set in French Canada, so you might get a little bit of a different accent, but that's fun. You can you can test out your French skills either way. He's actually the director of the film Laurence Anyway, which is a really groundbreaking movie from 2012. It's about a trans woman's experience coming out and her relationship with her partner. You can actually watch that on Netflix. But honestly, yeah, anything by Xavier Dolan is awesome, and I'm looking forward to testing out The Night Logan Woke Up. There you have it. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Emma. Thanks, John. Of course, that wraps up this week's episode of Talking France. We will be back with more next week. Hope you enjoyed listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.